to Hear the Word of God, the online and broadcast teaching ministry of the Rev. Eric Alexander. As we turn this evening, and if you will turn in your Bible with me to the Epistle to the Hebrews, it would be helpful. I think that most of us are probably in the position with reference to Hebrews that we know parts of this epistle very well, like the 11th chapter and its great account of the heroes of faith, and we know at least part of the 12th well about running the race that is set before us. And there are texts in Hebrews that most of us are very familiar with, uh, like the one that speaks of Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. But as a whole, I think it's probably true that Hebrews is one of the neglected areas of the New Testament. And I would guess that uh, for most of us, that is probably because it is not the easiest book in the New Testament to get a grasp of and to understand. Now, what I want to do right away is to try to assure you of the immense value and blessing that there is in a study of the epistle to the Hebrews. The latest commentary on Hebrews, and in my judgment, one of the best that has ever been written, is by a man called Philip Hughes, who is from this country but is uh, working in America, in Westminster Theological Seminary. And he begins his preface with uh, these words, living on close terms with the epistle to the Hebrews for a half dozen years has immensely deepened my appreciation of the rich strength and compassion of the Christian gospel and increased my own personal grasp of the faith won for us and delivered to us by him who is the apostle and high priest of our confession. The serious study of the epistle to the Hebrews, he says, cannot fail to have a powerfully beneficial effect on the personal life of the individual Christian and on the corporate well-being of the church. It is a tonic for the spiritually debilitated. Now many of us know what it is to be spiritually debilitated. And I have no doubt that this area of God's word, as we persevere to understand its truth, can be precisely that, a tonic for our souls. And I'm sure the deepest reason that it is such a tonic is that in a special way, the epistle to the Hebrews holds up Christ before our gaze in his glory and majesty and greatness. You may have become familiar with the fact that twice over in this epistle, we are specifically invited to consider him. In chapter 3 and verse 1, Therefore, holy brethren who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. 
and then chapter 12 at verse 3, after the exhortation to run the race that is set before us, the apostle says, consider him, that is Jesus, to whom we are to look away as the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Now the theme which binds the whole of the epistle to the Hebrews together is the theme of the absolute and supreme and unique glory of the Lord Jesus Christ as our prophet and priest and king. You know that threefold office in which Jesus is seen so often by the reformers. Well now, it is in these three offices that the epistle to the Hebrews sets Jesus before us in his exalted glory and the means by which God restores our spiritual debility is by revealing Jesus to us in his majesty and greatness. And beloved, there is ultimately no other answer for our spiritual need, whatever it may be, than new visions of Jesus. And that's why this epistle is of such tremendous importance. It is not ourselves primarily we need to see. It is Jesus we need to see. And this epistle sets him forth, as I say, exalted and supreme as a prophet, priest, and king. You can see how we are introduced to this, incidentally, in the first few verses of the epistle. He is the supreme and ultimate prophet because God has spoken in him. The epistle begins in many and various ways or God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners, if you have the authorized version, spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by a son. Now Jesus is the exalted, supreme and perfect prophet, because God did not speak in him in parts and fragments, as he did through all the other prophets, even the greatest. He spoke through Jesus in full and final perfection. He has spoken to us now in a son. He is the supreme and ultimate priest because in verse 3 of chapter 1 he has made purification for our sins. He reflects the glory of God and bears the very stamp of his nature upholding the universe by his word of power when he had made purification for our sins. Now that is the ministry of the priest. And he made purification for our sins not in symbol or in shadow as the priests in the old covenant did but in reality. And Jesus is the perfect high priest because he is holy, harmless and undefiled as the epistle tells us, separate from sinners. Not like them, not one amongst them and therefore having sin of his own to deal with, but wholly harmless and undefiled, separated from sinners. He is the perfect high priest because he entered into the holy place once for all. Not again and again as the priests of the old covenant did, but once and for all. 
And he is the great high priest in his perfection because he took into that holy place not the blood of goats and calves, but his own blood, thereby securing not a temporary, but an eternal redemption for us. Now you see, every man needs a prophet. Every man needs one to whom God will come and speak to him. He needs someone who will bring him the word and counsel and will of God into his darkness. And Jesus is that perfect prophet. Every man needs a priest. He needs one who will bring him the good news from God as to how his sin may be cleansed and purged and taken away. And Jesus is the perfect priest. But he is also the supreme and ultimate king and potentate. First, because he reigns not in earth, but in heaven. You will notice in verse 3 of chapter 1, he reflects the glory of God and bears the stamp of his nature, upholding the universe by his word of power. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And he reigns not in earth, but in heaven. His kingdom, therefore, is a heavenly kingdom, and there are no borders to his reign. And he is the supreme and ultimate king and potentate because his throne is eternal, secondly, and not temporary. Look at verse 8 of this first chapter where you get the same thing. But of the Son, he says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now in this epistle you see Jesus is always the one who is better. This is the great design of the writer of this epistle. It is to exalt Jesus, to lift him up above every other level. There is a unique glory that belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. And indeed this word better is a key word in the epistle to the Hebrews. Jesus is better than the prophets, better than angels in chapters 1 and 2, better than Moses in chapters 3 and 4, better than Aaron and his priesthood in chapters 4 to 10. He gives us a better hope, chapter 7, verse 19, makes a better covenant founded on better promises, chapter 8, verse 6. He offers up a better sacrifice for sins and sets our hearts on a better country, that is, an heavenly. Now do you see what he is saying? In Jesus, everything is better. Now, my dear Christian brothers and sisters, this is what we need to learn from this letter. That in Jesus Christ, everything is better. And there is an exalted glory that belongs to our Lord Jesus Christ that ought to draw our attention and fix our gaze and bring our hearts to be enlarged with a sense of his wonder. And this is what this epistle does. Now perhaps we should stand back a little and clarify one or two things about the epistle in general. And let me repeat that we are simply going around the outskirts of it, as it were, this evening. First, I think it's important and, and not a trivial matter that we should have some idea in our minds about the authorship and the destination 
of this letter. That's an easy thing to do when you are turning to one of Paul's epistles because they almost all begin Paul addressing himself to a particular church and in a particular place and the authorship and the destination are fairly clear. It is clear that this is a letter. You will notice at the very end in chapter 13 he says, I have written to you Chapter 13, verse 22, and the end of the verse, I have written to you briefly. But nowhere are we told who this letter that he has written, and at the end he also has greetings. You will notice he talks about Timothy who has been released. He greets them uh, and says, those who come from Italy send you greetings, and as the typical epistolary ending grace be with all of you amen but we are nowhere told uh, just exactly who it is from or who it is to the authorized version uh, has as you will notice if you've got an authorized version the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews now I'm sorry if um, I stand on the toes of those of you who, like me, love the authorized version. But that bit doesn't actually occur in the original at all. The epistle of Paul to the Hebrews is certainly not part of the Greek text of Hebrews. And it is simply a conjecture. The Greek heading is simply to the Hebrews. And that occurs in almost uh, uh, the, the most important Hebrew Manuscript, the Greek manuscripts of Hebrews. Uh, some are sure that Paul did write it, and it's not in any sense impossible. I'm sure of that. Some are absolutely certain that he didn't. And I think the only thing that we can be absolutely certain about is that nobody knows whether Paul wrote it or who wrote it. All sorts of people have been thought to have written Hebrews. Uh, Paul, Barnabas, Silas and various other people, but I think the answer is that we do not know who the author of Hebrews was. As to its destination, that is, who it is written to, we are almost equally in the dark. We know that it was written to Hebrew Christians, and some think they were in Rome because of the comment at the very end, those who are from Italy send you greeting and the idea is that possibly these people were from Italy and from Rome who were with the author at the time he wrote and they were sending greetings back to Rome some think that it was uh, written to a group of Hebrew Christians in Palestine possibly in Jerusalem and there is a, a lot of very interesting evidence that has arisen from the Dead Sea Scrolls that some of you may know about. Do you know about the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were dug up around the region of the Dead Sea? And uh, there was a community which lived there in the first century called the Essenes. And it seems possible, at least, that the people to whom Hebrews was written might have been a group like that or from that kind of background. And that's not at all impossible. 
But the one thing we do know, as I say, the rest is really conjecture, some of it based on likely possibilities and some not. What we do know is that these were a group of Christians who had been converted out of Judaism, but they had not really left the old life and the old world behind them. And that's one of the basic facts we need to grasp about these Jewish Christians. They were in danger because they had not left the old world from which they were redeemed. They were in danger now of slipping back. Now that's why you find warnings here and there in Hebrews about this very danger of slipping back or drifting away. Chapter 2, for example, verse 1, Therefore we must pay the closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And you get the same uh, emphasis uh, in chapter 4. While the promise of entering his rest remains, let us fear lest any of you be judged to have failed to reach it. And uh, again, further on, you get the warning against falling away. Now, there is this danger, clearly. This is an unstable situation that these people were in. They were in danger of slipping back. This may have been largely because of the pressure of opposition and persecution which they had borne. Because the next thing we need to grasp about these converted Hebrews who have become Christians but have not come right out from the world that they ought to have left is that they were under pressure. There were many sorts of pressures under, uh, upon them, possibly pressures from Jews. And it seems the Jewish authorities may well have been bringing pressure to bear upon them and there would have been Jewish parties which would have been pressurizing them. Something, depending where these people were, the pressure may have been coming from Rome. And that is possible. But you will see in chapter 10, if you turn over, that there is evidence of great pressure that they are under. You can almost tell the kind of pressure. They have not yet been brought to give their lives. There has been no persecution in the form of shedding of blood. But do you notice here, in chapter 10, verse 32, Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to abuse and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on the prisoners, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Now there is a situation. Can you see why so many of these people were perhaps feeling spiritually debilitated? The plundering of their property. He says, you have joyfully accepted it, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, now here is the point, you see, many of them are saying, we feel as if we are going to be giving up. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of perseverance, is the word, so that you may do the will of God and receive what is promised. Now, perseverance is one of the great needs of these people to whom the apostle is writing. And he is trying to minister to them the kind of hope and encouragement which will enable them to persevere. 
that great chapter we all know at the beginning of chapter 12 where the apostle tells them about the great company of witnesses who are surrounding them but he says don't put your eyes on the witnesses put your eyes on Jesus looking away to Jesus the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despised the shame he says let us therefore run with perseverance same word the race that is set before us and it's this great need for perseverance now beloved there are times in our experience when that's what we need God to say to us we need him so to lift up the Lord Jesus before our eyes in all his exalted glory who has become our fellow in his sufferings who is not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmity and we need to have our eyes directed away to him so that the grace of perseverance may be given to us oh for Christian perseverance and this is their great need now in the light of that need the writer of this epistle sends them what he calls a word of exhortation. Chapter 13, verse 22, suffer the word of exhortation. He writes, I appeal to you, brethren, the RSV, bear with my word of exhortation. But it is an exhortation based on doctrine taught out of the scriptures and this is important it is not just an exhortation you know like the people standing at the side of the race on you go lads keep on to the end you know the crowd of his fellow believers urging him on now that's a great thing that can do something for you can't it when you're in the midst of a race but there is something infinitely more than that that we need not just cheerleaders we need a ground for our confidence. We need heart given to us. And that comes from the doctrine that is taught out of the scriptures. Coupled in this epistle with warnings. And you will know about the warning passages in the epistle to the Hebrews. Warnings about the consequences of persistently drifting away from God. He says, oh, let me warn you. And time and again in this epistle, you get these warning notes sounded. Lest we persist in drifting and drifting and drifting until we have fallen away. And there is a warning against what we call apostasy turning away from God but this exhortation is based I say again on the doctrine that the apostle expounds out of the scriptures examples of the word of exhortation are almost always introduced with let us therefore now these three words are of great importance let us is the exhortation therefore 
refers back to the doctrine which is the ground on which he exhorts them. Now the scripture is universally like this. And when it is applied as a medicine to our spiritual debility, it first of all expounds the truth to us and then says, let us therefore on the basis of this being true, because you have grasped this about Jesus, let us therefore. For example, chapter 4, verse 11. Having expounded to them the Sabbath rest that God has given to his people to enter into, he says in chapter 4.11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest that no one fall by the same sort of disobedience. You see how the exhortation is based on the doctrine. Chapter 4, the end of the chapter, having expounded to them the high priesthood of Jesus and how he sympathizes with our weaknesses and is, has been tested in every point as we are. He says, let us then, because of this truth, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Let us strive to enter that rest. Let us draw near to the throne of grace. Do you see the exhortation? into the rest that remains to the people of God. In the midst of all the pressures and persecutions, enter the rest that God has given to his people. He says, draw near to the throne. Chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, let us, because God has sought to make us growing children and has provided solid food for us that we may enter into maturity, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity. And there is that great exhortation. Let us go on, says the apostle. He is speaking to those who have been refusing, you see, to go on. The great problem that is so obvious in the Christian world and in so many Christian people's lives where they have just stopped at a certain point and refused to go on with God. And the Apostle's great exhortation is, let us go on. Chapter 10, you get several of them in verses 22, 23, and 24. Let us draw near, as the other exhortation, with a true heart and full assurance of faith. 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. 24, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. And all on the basis of verse 19, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, he is expounding the doctrine. And on the basis of the doctrine, he exhorts them. Now notice in the 12th chapter at the beginning, let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. That the therefore, which occurs at the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 12, really points us back to the whole of chapter 11, where the apostle has, as it were, preached his way through the whole of the Old Testament. From the creation 
In chapter 11, verse 3, by faith we understand that the world was created by the word of God through the stories of Abel, Noah, Enoch, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and the people of Israel leaving Egypt and entering Canaan. Now there is a spectrum of biblical preaching, if you like, but that's what he's doing, you see. That's what chapter 11 is. It's an exposition of the faith of our fathers beginning from the creation, going right through the whole of the scripture. And then he says, I had a whole lot of other material, but time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and so on. But the whole point is that the answer to our need when we are at a low level of spiritual life is precisely this. It is the truth of God in all its fullness and exhorting one another out of Holy Scripture, especially exhorting one another to consider him who endured from sinners such contradiction against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So the answer to drifting and discouragement in this epistle is Christ in all his fullness, in all the scriptures. And there really is no other answer than that, you know. By whatever means we are to exhort one another out of the scriptures that we might get a new vision of Christ in all his glory. Well now, that's the general form and nature of this epistle, a word of exhortation. And I want us in the last few minutes just to turn to the very beginning of chapter 1, where the writer plunges straight into his theme, which Dr. Philip Hughes describes as the uniqueness and finality of the revelation of God in his Son, Jesus Christ. The authorized version translation certainly has a real majesty about it when it begins, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us in his Son. The RSB says, In many and various ways God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by a Son. Now, the primary truth that he is introducing at the beginning of chapter 1 is that God is a speaking God. He has not remained silent. And when his people are in this kind of condition in which the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews sees these Hebrew Christians to be, when they are downcast, when they are under pressure, when they are suffering from spiritual debility, one of the great things they need to grasp is that God is a speaking God. And he has spoken to us. Now that is not just to this generation, but to us. 
in the generation, the dispensation which has been heralded in, in the coming of Jesus Christ. He has spoken in time past, he has spoken to us in Christ. Now the fact that God is a speaking God, you see, is the basis of everything in Christian faith and Christian life. We are utterly dependent on the fact that God has spoken and has thereby revealed himself and his purposes and his ways. Apart from that, we would be in impenetrable darkness. And we need to think about this. Were it not that God was a God who spoke, we would be in utter and absolute darkness, for there is no other way for mortal man to know God, to begin to understand his ways, to grasp his purpose for our lives, except God will speak. And from the very beginning of creation, you see, God is a speaking God, and everything derives from this. At the creation, the very first thing we are told is that God spoke. He commanded the light to appear out of darkness. He spoke and it was done. And his first speaking is a creative word. And even after man has fallen, when in all the darkness of his transgression, Adam, as it were, is groping around a world into which darkness has suddenly come, the first shaft of light is when God comes as a speaking God and cries out, Where art thou? And that's the word of redemption, of God the Redeemer who is already set upon seeking man who has turned from him and gone into the darkness. And it's in the light of this that Jesus comes to seek and to save those who are lost. Apart from God's speaking, I say again, we would be in impenetrable darkness. But God has spoken, and he has spoken in two ways, says the author of the Hebrews. He has spoken first to our Old Testament fathers. In many and various ways, God spoke of old to our fathers through the prophets. He has secondly spoken to us. And that is to us who are in the dispensation that has been ushered in in Christ. The point of that is that God's speaking is an evidence of his longing, you see. He speaks because he desires fellowship. Have you ever thought about that? That's the reason for the creation, you see. Why is it that God spoke out into the formless void of the creation? It was not that God needed a creation. God is a self-sufficient God, the only self-sufficient one in the whole universe. But he spoke and created the world because he was a God who desired fellowship with his creatures. And his creation of the world found its climax and crown in man. And when he spoke again into man's rebellion and darkness, it was for the same reason. It was because there is a longing in the heart of God for fellowship.
Now that speaking is done in two ways which stand in contrast to each other as the writer of the epistle tells us in this first uh, verse or two. But also they stand in continuity with each other first through the prophets and secondly through the Son. The contrasts are obvious, you will notice, between these two ways in which God has spoken. First, there were many prophets. There is one son. The second contrast is that the prophets were servants. When God came to speak in Christ, he spoke through his son. There is thirdly a contrast between the partial way in which God spoke and revealed himself through the prophets and the complete way in which he speaks through his Son. For there is an absolute completeness about the revelation that came when God spoke to us by his Son. And yet with the contrast there is a continuity. It is the same God. Do you notice? This is the value of the authorized version's translation, I think. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past to our fathers by the prophets, has spoken unto us by his Son. Now here is one of the great areas where we shall find the epistle to the Hebrews, I hope, to be a great help to us. And that is in giving us a right way of approaching and thinking about the Old Testament. If there is one area where I think evangelical Christians probably are in need of help from God's word, it is precisely here, in a right way of approaching and thinking about the Old Testament. Now, do you notice that the Apostle says it is the same God? There is a continuity. There is a contrast because the prophets were men. Christ is the Son. The prophets were many. Christ is unique. The prophets had a partial revelation. Christ has a complete revelation. But it is the same God who has spoken. And this is what gives to Holy Scripture its authority and its consistency. It is that God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began. That's what Zacharias says in his great hymn of praise in Luke 1.70. These writings says Paul, are God-breathed. They have the authority of God in them. Now we need to take that from this introductory word in Hebrews, that the whole of the Old Testament has to be understood and can only be understood from this position that it bears the authority of God in every bit as much a sense as the New Testament does. There is no area of the Old Testament which does not bear that authority. 
And that's the only basis from which we can possibly approach the Old Testament. That's the basis from which Hebrews approaches it. God, who in various ways and at diverse times spoke unto our fathers by the prophets, has now spoken in his Son, the same God. Do you see? Now, not only so, but there is a consistency in the whole of Scripture. The revelation of God which he has spoken in Christ, we have now in the New Testament. And there is an absolute consistency because there is a consistency in God, you see. And the God who has spoken in the Old Testament is the same God who has spoken in the New and we need to grasp that there is a consistency therefore about the whole of Holy Scripture, which is the only foundation on which we shall ever understand the Old Testament or the New. And our understanding of the New will suffer if we have reservations about the authority of the Old just as much as our understanding of the Old Testament will suffer if we have reservations about God's authority and inspiration in a general sense. The relation you see between the two is not one of untruth to truth or of the less true to the more true but the relation of promise to fulfillment and of shadow to reality. In the Old Testament, there are promises that God has given. And the fulfillment of all these promises is in Christ. In Christ, all the promises of God are yea and amen. And it's in Christ, therefore, that we are able to understand all the promises that God has made. He fulfills them all to us in Christ. There are shadows in the Old Testament. Shadows, if you like, cast back by Christ. And these shadows have a reality. They have a fulfillment. Now you know whenever you see a shadow that is cast by the shining of the sun on an object, you know that there is a reality to which the shadow points you. Now the reality, do you see, is in Christ. There are sacrifices and offerings. There are institutions and ceremonies in the Old Testament. And these are shadows of the true. But the reality is in Christ. And it's when we have grasped that God is a God who has spoken. He has spoken with authority. He has spoken with consistency. And out of the riches of his speaking, we are able to discover the revelation that he has made supremely in Christ Jesus because all the scriptures speak to us of him. And it's there that we will find our souls 
enlarged and blessed and healed and uplifted. And my prayer is that as we turn to study this epistle together in these coming weeks, we may find it a tonic for our spirits and the word of God to lead us to see Jesus. You're listening to Hear the Word of God with the Reverend Eric Alexander, a minister in the Church of Scotland for over 50 years. To access more Bible teaching from Reverend Alexander, visit hearthewordofgod.org, where your generous contribution will help us sustain and grow this ministry. That's hearthewordofgod.org. You could choose instead to mail a check to this address, 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601 or call 1-800-488-1888. This program is a presentation of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm Mark Daniels. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for Eric Alexander and Hear the Word of God.